Hi, y'all. It's Thursday, and breaking news, men are still trash. So trash. <laughs> <laughs> but before we get over that fact, we have a great show for you today. We're talking Acosta and Epstein and the latest going on there. And then I'm sitting down with Colin Egglesfield, who I don't think is trash. He's wonderful. Huh. Well, we'll see you on the timeline. But first, sir, may I remind you, this is a bagel boss. <laughs> <laughs> Good morning, Twitter. I'm Alex Berg. He is Zach Stafford, and you are watching AM to DM. Mm. We do not have bagels right now. We don't have bagels. <laughs> we'll get into that story later. Oh, I've we just will. Been enamored with people talking about that today. Indeed. And last night, girls were. Rightfully upset. Yes, rightfully, rightfully upset. upset. And I mean, so much to cover with uh, men being trash in the news, you know? Uh, We're yes. going to get to it. We will get there. So how are you? How'd you spend last night? Because I know, think we did the same thing. We did do the same thing. We both caught up on the latest episode of Pose, which go. was... Ooh, uh, a lot. I An cried and cried. roller coaster, to say the least. And you know what, Twitter? We're going to save you the uh, yelling that you would do if we ruined it <laughs> by not ruining it. And we're going to say, watch it, get ready, because... Because Ryan Jamal Swain, who plays uh, uh, Damon on the show, is going to be here on Monday. Yes. So and it's very exciting. And it's so, exci it's so exciting. And also, you know what that means, Twitter? You can't say we spoiled it, because it's right before the next episode comes out on Tuesday, and we have an actor here talking about the episode. So you have been warned. Get ready. It's going to be lovely. Yes. Mm -hmm. And devastatingly beautiful mm. is what came to mind. All right, so yeah. it's the opposite of beautiful. I think we should move on to some uh, Yes, things. yes, yes, yes. Well, men are really acting up, possibly mm. more than normal, maybe. Roxanne Gay tweeted, I was wondering what you guys were talking about with this bagel boss business. Yikes. This little fella is mad, mad, and dangerous. Mm. In another news item about garbage men, Reddit Ships tweeted this post. My boyfriend of five years just disclosed to me that he does not believe women should be allowed to vote. <laughs> That's Ooh. correct. That's oh. correct. And because all good things come in trios, Adam Getachow tweeted, Representative Robert Foster, a GOP candidate for Mississippi governor, denied access to reporter Larison Campbell unless she brought along a male colleague. Campaign, quote, Perception is everything. Unfortunately, this is the game we're playing right now. The game we're playing the right now. sexism is the game they're playing right now. Y'all are shaking in this uh, misogyny over there. The America, <laughs> it's, it's a lot. So, okay, before we dive into the ones I am very familiar with, let's talk about this bagel thing, because I keep imagining some little bagel person throwing bagels and people being mad on the internet. I mean, if the uh, bagels were metaphors of misogyny, that would be correct. Apparently, okay. at an establishment in Long Island, uh, this guy was uh, being really rude to the women who were working there and went on this tirade about dating apps and how mm. he has been uh, judged for his height. And yeah. he was promptly tackled by a good Samaritan who was nearby. And someone caught this on video. Uh, the video got a ton of views and lots of people talking about this fight. Karma comes right at you. It really does. Speaking of where karma needs to go, it needs to go to this girl's uh, boyfriend. Because you know what? Voting is legal and has been legal for over 100 years. So girl, leave him. And also, what did y'all talk about yeah. in 2016? Yeah, I was like, for that story, I was just like, dump his ass. You know, like, how? just, just dump him. Like, yes. why do you even want to be with this man? Man, but the story that really got me mm -hmm. was uh, this reporter who tried to cover this candidate, and uh, yes. they told her that she couldn't because uh, it could potentially give the image that uh, of impropriety that the candidate, the male candidate, was having an affair with her, and that just says 
everything about what they think about what women are here mm -hmm. for, that you could only view women uh, as a potential threat or a sex object, and that's that, so. It's insane gross. because working on a campaign trail is a very hard job, and some of the best reporters in the world get these jobs. And for you to think that we're just sex objects, especially women, is just yeah. Ugh, yeah. gross, go away, burn, Yes, there is a, a benevolent form of sexism that purports mm -hmm. to uh, protect uh, women, uh, and it really just forces us uh, off the table. We don't get a voice at the table. So mm. gross, disgusting. All of it made me think of all the incredible women I know who put up with this bullshit yes. every single day. So let's take it to the timeline. I'm fed up with these men. So who's an amazing woman you want to highlight in your life or in the news? Tweet us using the hashtag AM2. Men are trash. And I just have to say, Roxane Gay deals with a lot of trash on Twitter, and she handles it beautifully. Absolutely. So you were mine, girl. There you go. All right. Jennifer Epstein tweeted, the Acosta press conference ran 53 minutes, and he never offered any kind of apology to the victims, even when he asked if he would. Adrian Lawrence, an attorney, tweeted, Alex Acosta, the U.S. Labor Secretary who granted Jeffrey Epstein immunity from federal prosecution in 2008, is proposing 80% in funding cuts for the government agency that fights child sex trafficking. And Adrian joins us now to discuss the latest on Acosta. Good morning. Good morning. So let's just jump right in. What stuck out to you about this press conference? So this press conference, it was... Uh, I guess in legal terms, an absolute hot mess of <laughs> well and <said>. effort. <laughs> yes, that is that's a Latin legal term, believe it or not. Latin hot mess. <laughs> indeed, Acosta, our current labor secretary, talking about the Epstein deal, it's clear that he was trying to play hero by suggesting that he essentially was able to get the best deal that he could get for Epstein and for the people in terms of avoiding what Florida state prosecutors were looking to do. And essentially the way he packaged it is saying essentially that he needed to step in as a federal prosecutor because the state prosecutors weren't doing their job and they would have gotten Epstein um, a charge that would have included no jail time, no registration and no payments to the victims. And so while he's trying to play hero and cape for justice, he's also blaming prosecutors, judges. And on top of that, then he goes off and he blames victims. Acosta really went in when it really isn't an accurate reflection of what happened, given that there was just an investigation that found essentially that Acosta made material omissions in the process of essentially stringing these victims along. Mm -hmm. So Adrian, what would normally happen in a human trafficking case or a sex trafficking case like this? Well, what I can tell you what would definitely not happen is what happened here, which is essentially that this deal said that there would be no federal criminal violations, five specific, that there would be no charges against Epstein for them. That's very rare when you have a federal prosecutor stepping in to a state case. And also Epstein pled to a state charge that was solicitation of prostitution. It had nothing to do with sex trafficking or even just sex involving a minor. And all he got was 13 months and he spent six days a week on work release also, this deal involved no none of his co-conspirators facing any charges. This was the sweethardest of deals that would never happen. And it's a one in a million. And it really signifies that there's a problem here, a very big problem. Mm, a very big problem. One of the things you mentioned is the victim blaming that happened here. And, uh, and Acosta said that uh, today uh, we know more about how trauma impacts victims than we did uh, back then. Um, what did you make of that? 
Okay, so I don't know what a cost is really getting at here in part because that was what a decade ago. We knew a lot about victim trauma then, and we know even more now, but really it wasn't like it happened in 1920. Mm-hmm. Like this is the basics of trauma, and there are things that they have been discussing for a long time. So essentially what he's doing is he's pulling the those were different times then when it was really simply a, about a decade ago and also the reality remains that he didn't inform the victims of this sweetheart plea deal he was giving Epstein. And he strung them along. They didn't have an opportunity to come forward and to challenge it before it actually was put into place. It's, it's really, it's injustice. That's exactly what it is. Injustice. So let's take us to current day in terms of Acosta. Uh, what are the implications of what Acosta is proposing with funding for fighting child sex, sex trafficking now? So right now, because he's the current labor secretary, he's proposed what would be about an 80% budget cut in the sex trafficking enforcement division and efforts that they have. That would take the budget from about 68 million to 18 and a half million. And that is a significant cut that he's essentially saying, oh, why should we bother fighting against sex trafficking and child sex trafficking overseas? And that's also kind of, it's really a, a big red flag that says there's a problem here. Since he gave Epstein the sweetheart deal, and we know there is some sex trafficking going on, or at least those allegations based on the charges Epstein was faced with on Monday, but then also to essentially cut government funding to end this kind of social ill, it really says that this man Acosta, he has a problem. Yeah, this got us all thinking this morning, if there was anything legally that could be done in Florida to rectify what has happened. Well, unfortunately, uh, I don't think there's much can be done at this point when it comes to the Florida state conviction that Epstein, he got that sweetheart deal for. But now there can be something done, as we're seeing in New York, as they're seeking to prosecute him for um, these child sex trafficking offenses. In addition to, we've learned that there was child pornography found in his home and possibly the U.S. attorney in New York is using that as leverage to get more out of Epstein by withholding those charges and maybe possibly we could see those uh, child pornography charges show up later on. But in terms of right now, those are the things we're focused on. Um, But also something that is kind of hopefully will be beneficial is that the House Oversight and Government Reform Committee has asked Acosta to come and appear and to testify about the sweetheart deal on July 23rd. And so hopefully he can be held accountable in that respect, especially because essentially if he goes before Congress, he could be putting himself in a perjury situation if he lies. But we've seen plenty of people appear before congressional committees lately and not be held accountable for their multiple acts of perjury. So who knows? So who knows? Well, Adrian, we always love talking to you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, guys. You know, uh, just learning about how Acosta wants to cut 80% in funding uh, for this anti-sex trafficking agency, it just like really points to how like it's the whole damn system. Whole damn system and men are trash. There we go. There you go. (laughs) Okay, so here's a tweet from New York Times opinion columnist Farhad Manju. I would like you to call me they. The singular they is a perfect pronoun, inclusive, flexible, obviates inadvertent misgendering. It also breaks us out of the collective mind prison of gender norms that stifle us all. Joining us today to talk about their latest column, Call Me They, is Farhad Manju. Good morning. Hi, good morning. So what inspired you to argue for gender-neutral pronouns in your column? 
Well, one of the problems, I mean, this is a problem if you're a writer that kind of comes up all the time. And so, uh, you know, there's sort of workarounds. You can say the very clunky he or she, but that's, uh, you know, we know now we are being aware that that's not inclusive. And um, it just, and then I noticed it sort of in in kind of life, like people around me, uh, you know, want and are using different pronouns. And it struck me that, um that the pronouns that we have and that we've applied to people for a long time are both inexact because like he or she doesn't cover all, um, all the, all the kinds of genders that people have and, um, and is exclusive. And also it's just imprecise. Like it doesn't, um, it doesn't accurately describe the world. And, uh, you know, in, in language, we need, uh, we need this singular, um, pronoun to a non-gendered pronoun and i feel like we have it in they and i noticed everywhere um the use of the singular they just kind of becoming more common and i wondered uh you know why not apply that to myself uh because it's just so uh useful Mm. so various languages like french and spanish depend on gendered language to be constructed how are we seeing a neutralizing language handled in those cases um, I mean, it's, it's difficult. Like there, every, every language has sort of different, um, kinds of gendering and different norms. Like the one thing I learned uh, in sort of doing a lot of research on this is that, you know, many, uh, languages have very little gender. Um, I mean, they obviously have gendered nouns, like, you know, you can think of like son and daughter. Uh, but, uh, you know, in, in spoken Chinese, at least in Mandarin, for example, there's no, uh, gendered pronouns. Um, I don't know if that uh, adds to, increases, makes it easier, um, makes a more inclusive climate, but I feel like it it must add something at the margins. Um, one of the difficulties we're having at this moment is, you know, people are very um, wary about the language to use to describe all kinds of things because we're meeting different kinds of people online mostly. And like online, you don't know about people's genders. You don't know about their backgrounds. It's difficult to kind of come up with something that works for a lot of people. Um, I feel like in English, we have that in May and the only, um, the, the sort of few remaining holdouts against it are people who, you know, other than intolerant people, uh, you know, people who have, um, I think, old-fashioned uh, notions about grammar that are quickly changing. Well, you mentioned son and daughter, and of course, you are embracing general-neutral pronouns, but where are you drawing the line when it comes to other folks in your life? Oh, uh, how do you mean drawing the line? I don't, I don't know if I'm drawing the line at all. I mean, I, I mean one thing that came up in this... Um, in a lot of comments to my article is like, how, how will I refer to my son and daughter? Uh, and will I use gendered pronouns for them? Um, they're, uh, they're pretty young. Um, they sort of are acclimatized to using gendered pronouns. And I don't feel like I'm going to change that for them, but for, you know, adults around me who, um, or even not adults, you know, people older uh, than my kids who express some difference in, 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 you know, in pronouns, I would, gladly use them. I, I feel like one of the one of the problems here is that though uh, we aren't accustomed as a culture, especially sort of mainstream culture, to kind of ask about pronouns, to kind of be cognizant of it. Um, one of the things I wanted to do in this article and with asking people to call me they uh, is to get people thinking about pronouns. Like I, I feel like even cisgender people should make the effort to let other people know their pronouns just as a way of um, inclusivity and like getting people to understand that 
the kinds of pronouns that everyone thinks they know are not necessarily the ones that apply to you know everyone else. Mm, don't apply to everyone else. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for thank joining you. us today and sharing your insights into your great column. Hey, thanks. I mean, I love it. I'm yeah. all about it. I'm yeah. here for it. It's so interesting doing a, an interview with someone about why gender neutral pronouns when we both like love yeah. and neutral, yeah. neutralizing pronouns and playing with with language. And this morning, um, we were having this conversation in the production meeting, and our producer, Mary, reminded us of a term, John, that us Philadelphians love, J-A-W-N. It could be like that Maybe John, me. this John, that John could be a person. A great gender neutral term. I love it. I was asking, is it active? Can you John? I, th- I, I think that you could. I'm Johnning <laughs> right now. What does that mean? <laughs> well, 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 we'll figure it out, but let's take it to the timeline. What's your favorite gender-neutral greeting or phrase? Let us know using the hashtag aim to dm I love y'all. Y'all means all. Y'all's great. Folk is another one. Yeah. I love using that. So, yeah. So, anyway, we're going to have a great show for you today. Later on, I'm sitting down with actor Colin Egglesfield, but up next, we have your fire tweets. I think you mean fire johns. Fire johns. <laughs> fire johns. <laughs> Welcome back. It's time for Fire Tweets. And I just got to say, I loved having that conversation about gender-neutral terminology. I did too. And I wasn't so pointing at you because I liked it. I'm pointing at you because I'm dancing with the fire. So oh, I love that you're you having a serious conversation. The... And I'm like, ooh, fire. You mean John? The John. You're He's dancing John. with the John. Mm-hmm. The John. These all right, let's do these tweets, yeah? Let's do them. Okay. I'm not going to use John at all. I'm joking. <laughs> all right, Shania Twink, you tweeted. You can tell the people in Big Little Lies are rich because they always storm out of therapy early. Like, that shit's not expensive. <laughs> I mean, I would never. Nicole Kidman does like go in for five minutes and she's like, you know, screw this. I'm going home because I'm why? Done. I'm rich. This exactly. means nothing to me. Whatever she's paying, like $2 a minute or something, like she can afford to lose that $30 for storming out 15 minutes early. Some of us can't. Unheard of. It's hurting us. Some of us. Mm-hmm. It is hurting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sorry, mom. Dot gov. Oh, should I try that again? Oh, <gasps> we've killed there fire. We, go. we killed fire. Oh, tweets. my God. Sorry, mom.gov. You tweeted. <laughs> My friend said she was dating someone new, and I asked who, and she said, I don't know, some guy. <laughs> some John. Some John. You when, know? When you say some John, it, I would be like, oh, John, is it John X, John Z? Yeah. Who's John? I can name all the guys I've dated. You can? There's been one. I'm kidding. Oh, well, I have to say, this is this tweet is, like, very appropriate for our men are trash yes. genre today. Like, you just can't even be bothered to remember yeah. who that one was. They're going to disappoint you anyway, <laughs> so move on. Don't save. Save that memory for something else. All right, Tess, you tweet it. Name a more crushing blow than this is a great start from your editor. I'll wait. <laughs> so, burn. I am an editor of a magazine, and I have sent this many times. But, you have. Uh, yes, and then another one I sent. It's cold. Is, uh, it's very cold. Or the other is, you know, this is a great, you have a gr- lot of great stuff here. But, and you just go. Oh, that makes me, like, cringe for whoever yeah. has to hear this a little bit, you what, know. What do you want us to say? This is garbage. Quit your job. No. Ace Watkins, you tweeted. I've been called a leftist, a socialist, and a communist. Call me what you want, but we all deserve to live in a world where the Adobe Creative Suite is free. <laughs> you know, there's air, there's water, and there's Adobe Suite. Give me my premiere. You know, I just want to edit some videos. <laughs> I don't even know how to use it, so <laughs> I don't need it. But I need this last tweet. Okay. The tweet of the day. <laughs> tweet of the day comes from Rachel. Me. Hi, this is the most important email I've ever sent. It took me an hour to write it. Them. I will be traveling from July 3rd, 2019 until July 15th, 2026, and will not have access to email. If this is an urgent matter, please consider just fucking chilling out. 
Thank you. <laughs> Have wow. you ever gotten one of these away vacation messages? I sure have. You know what I do? I go and find your deputy or whoever reports to you or your mother, and I forward it to them because you're not getting away from me. That is cruel. Why? That, that, that response is cruel. One of my besties has the most amazing vacation responder. Mm-hmm. Um, it says, vacation all I ever wanted. And then at the end, it says, like, I'm, I wouldn't, I'm not responding to you now, and, like, I probably wouldn't have responded to you anyway. Whoop. And that's the tea. That is the tea. That is. Well, coming up, Zach is sitting down with actor and now author Colin Egglesfield. But up next, we are talking about dad bods. Dad bods. Dad. Welcome back. This is from A to Z, and today we are talking dad bods. Here's a treat from Dusty Smith. Jason Momoa is getting body shamed on the internet today for this picture of him on vacation because he's, quote, fat now and has a dad bod. And I'm officially never taking my shirt off ever again as long as I live, not even in the shower. And he shared this screenshot of comments below the photo. Someone needs to start lifting again and been working on his dad belly. And if you were wondering what they are comparing this bod to, well, here you go. There it is. It is incredible, it's amazing, but both are incredible and amazing. And I'm not gonna rank them. Correct? Correct. Mm. So, you know, let's let's just set this up for y'all. Jason Momoa, if you're not a superhero fan, Marvel comic, all these things. Uh, he is famous for being an actor in things like Aquaman, and it's always really big. He's very godlike and mm-hmm. very handsome. But he's now on vacation, and you know, he's not on set. So you know what he's doing? Living his life. And that life looks fantastic, and I am confused at why we're mad about this today. Yeah, um, I mean, I can tell you why we're mad about this today. Please because do. of a... Uh fat phobia. Um, I am so, so tired and exhausted Mm. of body shaming. It's just unbelievably frustrating. I'm like, why are we still here and still doing this? Just let people live. All bodies are good bodies, period. It's really ridiculous. And you know, dad bod is a term that's come to popularity in the last few years. It comes in a social media era in which we're seeing men critiqued similarly to how women have been getting critiqued for centuries now. So we had to create a new term to be like, you know what guys, it may hurt getting talked about your body, but we're gonna say, if you don't have abs, here's a sexy term. And the term's working, you know, research is showing a lot of women who date men like the dad bods or whatever that means. But, you know, it is just showing that we as a culture are obsessed with ranking and not liking bodies and doing this stuff and it just becomes exhausting after a while because, you know, what does a dad bod even mean and why do we need to talk about it? Yeah, well, I think, you know, one of the interesting things about this term is kind of when it was, uh, when it first Mm -hmm. came to the fore, um, people really lauded this term, which is in such stark contrast to Mm -hmm. how you would see women treated, right? We never hear about mom bod and how mom bod is great and casual and cool and accepted. And I think it's just because we are so used to seeing women's bodies just so systemically critiqued. And I always think it's like when we see celebrities or women, uh, you know, critiqued in the press for their bodies for like losing too much weight Mm -hmm. or gaining too much weight. I mean, it's like no matter what, they're never ever good enough. Um, It's really just a way of saying like women should take up less space. Yes. Yeah. Completely. And it's all about space. And that's what they're saying about Jason Momoa right now. They're saying, how dare you go out in public and be publicly photographed by a paparazzi shot and use your body like this? Your body is considered or needs to be X for us to accept it at Y. And that's not okay. He's a person that deserves to live and have a Mai Tai and a and a carbohydrate if he wants. Yeah. So, but also what I thought was interesting about Jason specifically is that, as I mentioned, he is godlike. He is on a movie, uh, big movies where he has to be super ripped. And here is a post from actor Rob McElhenney who posted a photo of his ripped bod for his television show, Always Sunny in Philadelphia. He writes that this body was only obtainable after months of working out, lots of sleep, not eating, and a studio paying for it all. So TLDR on that one, it's not realistic. It's for his job. And the job is like becomes 
looking like that. Yeah. And that's not real life, y'all. Yeah, I mean, it definitely has taken me a long time in life to get to this point where I was like, happy and accepting of my own self. Mm -hmm. I feel like you have had a similar experience too. Same path. And it is like always such a constant struggle, but I really do feel like everyone should come as they are, Mm -hmm. have the body that makes you feel the best about yourself. Take up up space. Take up space how you want to take up space and own it. And you know what? You all find something else to complain about. For real. The world is ending. We're about to lose the internet. What you going to do about that girl? Focus on that. Mm. Well, anyway, moving on from that. And Jason Momoa, call me. I'll take you at any photo ever. Because mm. it's, it's a great time. Well, stay right there, because up next, Alex is talking about asylum seekers at the border with Natasha Pitsy. James Frederick tweeted, Imagine this. You flee your home, travel thousands of miles in brutal conditions, hoping for safety in the U.S., and get to the border only to be told to wait indefinitely in Mexico. Watch the short film Natasha Pitsy and I made for Doha Debates. I did watch the film, which is called The Waitlist, and today I'm joined by its co-creator, filmmaker, and journalist Natasha Pitsy. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining me. And let's jump in to talk about this film. Um, how did you find out about the waitlists along the Mexico-American border, and why did you focus on this one in Tijuana? So I actually came across the list several years ago in 2016 when thousands of Haitians arrived to Tijuana to that same stretch of the border and found themselves in a bottleneck trying to request asylum in the U.S. And there were rumors of this list back then, but I hadn't seen it until a few months ago when I was there with the arrival of the biggest migrant caravan from Central America. And I was just awed by the power this notebook had over thousands of asylum seekers lives. And I know Tijuana very well, so I became kind of fascinated by this list. You mentioned you were odd and fascinated by the list. Um, Can you talk a little bit more about what uh, these individuals are waiting for and how long the wait is? Of course. So all the people on the list are trying to do things the right way. And I'm using the, the words that people have said to me. Um, they're trying to legally request asylum. So basically to knock on the door of the U.S., go in and say to a border patrol official, like, I need help, I'm scared. And to go into the lengthy and often not not favorable asylum uh, request process. Um, And you used to be able to just get to the U.S., go up to the port of entry, go through and start that process. But now people find that they're waiting weeks or even months in this limbo in these kind of informal lists that are arranged along the border. Because the U.S. every day says, we don't have the capacity to process you, you need to come back another day. So the migrants themselves organize these kind of waiting systems. Yeah, and in the film, people are literally just standing there waiting for their names to be called and returning. Um, What are the biggest misconceptions about seeking asylum in the U.S. that you wanted to highlight? I mean, at the moment, I think we can see that the administration is set on criminalizing uh, asylum seekers and refugees and putting out so much misinformation to do that. And the bottom line is none of those people want to be there. No one wants to be in that situation. These are people who are fleeing persecution, like unimaginable violence. Um, And it's not an easy thing for anyone to do. It's not a choice. Someone says, hey, I'm just going to go do this today. Um, And so I think this idea that people are trying to get a free ride and somehow trick the system is extremely frustrating to hear over and over again. And the other thing is that's what you see in the film is the tip of the iceberg of the process most people go through. They then go into these really lengthy, intimidating asylum proceedings that can drag out for months or years and are often not in their favor. Like the majority of those people will be turned away from their asylum requests eventually. 
Yeah, you said that, uh, you know, these people are fleeing persecution and horrible, violent circumstances. Do the asylum seekers know what to expect that when they arrive, they're going to have to wait on this list? No, the, the short answer is no. People are so, I mean, most people are just trying to get by day to day. A lot of these people had to flee their homes in the middle of the night. Some of them never even got to go back to their homes to pick up their belongings before they fled. I mean, if, you know, if, if we're, we're watching the show, we know that we can get information. We can look at the news. We have an idea of the conditions of migrant shelters. We can probably access a lot of information about what to expect. The people caught in this don't have that ability. And they're often just trying to cope day by day and hope for the best. And they hear very scary rumors often that their children might be taken from them or that they're going to be put in these awful detention centers. But they don't really have a way of checking it out. And some people have said to me they don't want to know because they can't turn back. It's not an option. And whatever is ahead of them can't be as bad as what they're leaving. In the in the film, you feature a few different voices, um, including migrants from outside of South and Central America. Um, why was it important to highlight those stories as well? So the majority of people there are from Central America, and they've endured so much. But I was just staggered by the stories I was told by people who'd come from. You, you know, you see in, in the film, you hear people from Cameroon and Africa. We've met people from uh, Yemen, Iran, the Ukraine there. And they've gone through these um, odysseys together. They've crossed more countries than they can remember, often having never left their home country or even their village before undertaking this journey. Um, and I was just so struck by them being trapped in a situation they never thought they'd be in and maybe not even having a common language. In many cases, people couldn't even communicate to understand what was going on and why they were being stopped. What is the mood like uh, among these individuals who are waiting? It's it's so dark, as you can imagine. People are so confused, frightened. They've brought a lot of trauma that they've experienced from either whatever made them flee and or things they've experienced along the journey. And they're so confused. And now, in addition to being made to wait before they cross the border, um, once people go in to request asylum, they're also being returned and kind of dumped back in Mexico indefinitely while their case is processed. It's uh, called Remain in Mexico. And so people are completely baffled. They don't understand what's going on, like why they're waiting and then being returned. So there's just so much fear and confusion along the border. Yeah, so much fear and confusion. It's just just horrible. Is there any sense of hope that uh, these folks have? I mean, realistically, not right now. I mean, there's some incredible people really trying to really trying to help. There's some incredible pro bono attorneys going down there. There are amazing shelters and faith based groups trying to help. But the reality is the overall situation is very bleak and it's affecting tens of thousands of people at the border at any one time and the way things are looking with this administration it doesn't look set to be better anytime soon well natasha i'm so glad that we have your film to highlight what's happening thank you so much for joining me thank you and you can watch the waitlist on youtube now up next zach sits down with actor colin egglesfield This is The Sit Down, and I'm here with actor Colin Egglesfield, who can now call himself an author after the release of his new book, Agile Artist, Life Lessons from Hollywood and Beyond. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. How, how are you doing? Welcome to town. Oh, this has been awesome. Thank you. Uh, this has been almost a dream come true, pretty much. It's amazing. Yeah. And let's dive into this dream, because yeah. I'm really excited to talk to you about your book. So you are most famous for being a star on shows like All My Children, Melrose Place, and movies like Something Borrowed. Yep. What made you want to write a memoir? You know, I've I've gotten to a point in my career now where younger actors will ask me, you know, how did I get there? What did I do? 
Uh, I also am a cancer survivor, mm-hmm. so uh, I do a lot of charity work with St. Jude Hospital. So I meet a lot of kids and families who have gone through what I went through. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just kind of felt like it felt like a right time to pretty much share all the stuff that I've learned over the past mm. few years that have gotten me to where I'm at. Mm. And you begin the book on September 11th, 2001. Yeah. Tell us why that day and what it inspired you to do. Yeah, so I, up until that point, I had been studying acting for like three years, and it was something that I really was passionate about, but it wasn't something that I felt super confident pursuing. And so what I talk about in my book, Agile Artist, is it's all about mind perception. So on that day when I saw people trapped up in those towers, uh, you know, I, I thought, man, if I was trapped up there and someone was going to give me a second chance at mm-hmm. life, I would just go at it you know, full force and not let anything or anyone stop me from mm-hmm. going after what I really cared about. So really what it comes down to is your mindset because mm-hmm. we have that, those negative thoughts in our head that yeah. are always like berating us and stopping us from going after what we truly want to have in life. So I talk about in the book all the stuff we learn as actors in acting class and having to create our own reality when we walk into auditions, Mm -hmm. everyone should know about. So that's why this book isn't just for artists, it's not just for actors, it's for anyone who's looking to create more fulfillment in their life and go after what truly matters to them. Mm, And something that truly mattered to you was becoming an actor, but also a very popular actor on a show called All My Children. Yeah. You started that role right as you found out you had testicular cancer. Yeah. What was it like retelling that story? Because I had never heard that from you. Yeah, so I I mean, I'd been, up till that point, I had been studying acting for like eight years. Mm -hmm. So like audition after audition, finally booked this steady acting job, come back here to New York City, my favorite city in the world, and thinking like, all right, this is it, man. This is living the life. And six months later, I get diagnosed with testicular wow. cancer. Um, so my three-year contract of all my children ended up being constant hospital visits, two surgeries, radiation, um, very scary time. Mm-hmm. And uh, it really put life into perspective for me in the sense that, you know what, um, I, I just couldn't handle uh, superficiality anymore. And I really started to look at really the things that were really important to me, which is family, making a difference in the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's these life lessons that have really helped me get, you know, essentially a different perspective on life that's made it more fulfilling. For sure. And during that time, you became a very iconic sex symbol on daytime television. What was it like having that, um, that kind of idea about you while you were also in this deep battle with cancer? It was difficult because what I was experiencing on the inside was not what I was mm. having to portray on the outside or what I thought. Yeah. And through my experience, I never really wanted to share this or tell anyone about it, especially testicular cancer, because it's you know very personal. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, over the years, I just kind of felt like, you know what, I see a lot of people struggling with just uh, owning who they truly are. Mm-hmm. And I feel like having gone through the experiences I've gone through, by being that, uh, I don't know, maybe that that someone that people can look to and say, you know what, he bared something that was really personal personal to him uh, in an authentic way, maybe in some way that will give them permission to also own who they are and and speak their truth too. Yeah, it's great. So you mentioned this a little bit earlier, but I want to hear more about this. Acting as a way to battle cancer. Mm-hmm. I've talked to lots of folks who've been on this journey and I've never heard that. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, I think it really comes down to uh, really deciding who you need to be uh, and almost the character you need to become in order to overcome uh, oh. what, what I was going through. And a really big, uh, pretty 
big influence on that was my mom. Mm. Uh, after I was diagnosed the second time, I called her up and I mean, I was terrified. Mm. And she said, uh, she said, honey, you've, you've, got to, you've got to become a warrior. Mm. You've got to put on your armor and you need to go to battle. Mm. And as an actor, it just clicked with me because that's what I was doing every day. Mm. I was assuming a character, going up on set and having to create reality in the face of uh, non-reality. And yeah. so when it came to my cancer, I was like, okay, who do I need to become mm -hmm. in order to stay empowered in this experience? So I created myself as someone who was that warrior, uh, who also was focusing on what I needed to do to stay positive, to stay healthy and not focus on the negative. Because yeah. it's super easy to focus on the negative and uh, just by staying focused on where I wanted to be instead of where I was at, mm -hmm. that's what really helped me live into that future. That's incredible. That's incredible advice. And I think that's a really key part of this book that you've written, I've written on. So I want to read a tweet about something that happened before this book came out, and it's about something borrowed. Uh, we have it right here, I believe. Uh, and it says, don't ask me to give a speech at your wedding because I will find a way to work in the fact we never got the sequel to Something Borrowed. They explicitly set up at the end, the first film, set up at the end of the first film, and that is a promise. So Will we ever get a sequel of this film, or are we shit out of luck now? <laughs> you know what? Unfortunately, I don't think it's going to happen. I mean, you never say never. But <laughs> yeah. with you know, Netflix mm -hmm. and Amazon and all these streaming services, it's been amazing for mm -hmm. so many reasons. However, unfortunately, now that not so many people go to movie theaters anymore to see mm -hmm. movies, the box office uh, draw for films like this just isn't there anymore. Yeah. Um, so if Netflix wants to like Netflix, step in, <laughs> uh, I think Kate, John, Ginny, and I would be happy to step oh in. Oh my God, let's all tweet this too. out. We so. need our sequel. We need yes. the sequel. So before I let you go, I want to play a little game with you. You know, okay. Susan Lucci, who starred with you in All My Children, came on the show, and we had her read dramatic readings of Beyonce lyrics. I'm sure she was amazing. And she was fantastic. Yes. Today, I want to give you the, uh, the, the challenge of being Cardi B. Are you ready about the ready Let's for do this? it. All right, well, here's a card for you. Okay. So I'm gonna prompt you, um, and then we're gonna go, you're gonna look straight to camera. You also okay. can read from the card they're holding up there if you're more comfortable. Okay. Sound good? Let's do it. All right, so the first one is, I like it. Now I like it like dollars. I like it like diamonds. I like stunting, I like shining. I like million dollar deals. Where's my pen, bitch? I'm signing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Woo. Okay. I'm feeling that, that was a warm up. That was a so warm up, and I am feeling a feeling. feeling. All right. Let's okay. let's. You are warm. Okay. Let's go to "I Do" by Cardi B. Okay. Leave his texts on read. Leave his balls on blue. Put it on an airplane mode so none of those calls come through. God, if I had an Oscar, I would just... Okay, wow, we gotta breathe, America. We gotta breathe through this. I don't know why I'm sweating over this and uh, you, I'm not even working. Okay, <laughs> last one, Get Up by Cardi B. Okay. Went from making tuna sandwiches to making the news. I started speaking my mind and triple my views. Real bitch, only thing. Fake boobs. <laughs> oh my god. Oh my god. That was so good. Oh my god. 
Wow. Okay. I don't know if I could have matched Susan, but that was she that taught was, me a lot. You so put me through a lot of a lot of things. You know, I've read the book, I went through feelings, and now you've read Cardi B, and yeah. you have put me through more feelings. Well, Colin, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so it's much, been Zach. such a pleasure Appreciate having it. you. Thanks for having uh, me. Of course, of course. And you can grab a copy of Agile Artist Life Lessons from Hollywood and Beyond wherever books are sold. Stay right there for more AM to DM up next. BuzzFeed News senior film reporter Adam B. Berry writes, It's been a brutal year for Hollywood. Box office numbers are way down. Summer movies keep flopping. Green Book won Best Picture. It's all just been terrible, except for Disney. Adam joins me now to discuss his latest piece, Disney won. Now what? Good morning. Good morning. Okay, so just how successful is Disney, and how did the company get there? Uh, well, I... To put it in perspective, um, as of June 30th of this year, Disney had made two or just over $2 billion in the domestic box office in the U.S. and Canada. Uh, no other studio has made even half that amount this far this year. And that's a degree of sort of lopsided success that no studio has really achieved in the kind of modern era of Hollywood of the last, I'd say, 20, 25 years. Um, at the at the very least, so um, it got here because uh, basically it has all of the most popular franchises: uh, Marvel Studios, Star Wars, all of the Pixar and Disney animated films, and their new sort of live action remakes of their animated classics have all sort of gathered together all of uh, the most uh, popular franchises in uh, in the most. Uh, the, the biggest size. You mentioned uh, Marvel, and you write that the premiere of The Avengers brought Disney out of a five-year slump. Why was that so successful, and how do they continue to use a similar strategy for these other films, like the franchises you mentioned? Well, I think, you know, The Avengers kind of uh, launched the, the era of the cinematic universe, which is the sort of idea that you don't just have one franchise, you have a sort of collection of franchises that all knit together to make one giant mega franchise. Um, I think that uh, Marvel Studios has had by far the most success in that area, but it really did change how Hollywood viewed what franchises can do for a studio. And um, I think in general, uh, what Disney has done is really monetize the whole idea of what I think people in the film business sort of look at as a franchise economy. Uh, the to the most effective uh, a, a way. It, it's really been the best at figuring out how to get these name brand franchises that people know immediately into theaters and, and have people want to go see them. Hmm. Well, Disney isn't just winning at the box office, but it acquired 20th Century Fox. Uh, what does that mean for both companies? Uh, well, I mean, 20th Century Fox is one of the biggest studios in Hollywood and one of the most sort of historic so uh, when Disney, uh, Disney first started negotiating to buy it at the end of 2017, that deal did not close until March of this year. It takes that long for giant conglomerates to buy other giant conglomerates. Uh, and it means that, first of all, there's just one less major studio in Hollywood. There's one less major studio making movies. Um, Fox will now be a kind of subsidiary of Disney and will make a much, uh, will still continue to make films, but on a much smaller scale than it had before when it was its own independent studio. Um, and for Disney, it means that um, I think most people are expecting 
Fox to start make the kinds of movies that Disney hadn't really been making in the past, movies that are more R-rated, that have more edge, more violence, um, or maybe more skewed towards an adult audience. Uh, but really, we are still waiting to see what that's going to look like, because right now, Fox has a whole bunch of movies that it had started making before the acquisition that it has to get into theaters first. Hmm. So where does Disney go from here? Uh, well, uh, you know, it sort of is a, that's a very uh, pressing question in Hollywood, right? In, you know, in the short term, it has a whole bunch of huge movies. The Lion King uh, remake opens next week. There's Frozen 2 and Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker coming this year. Next year, we'll, we'll see Mulan and a 101 Dalmatians prequel, uh, Cruella with Emma Stone, as well as uh, a, a two Pixar movies. Um, and uh, from then on, it looks like Disney is really you know, doubling down on the whole idea of its, of its franchises. We're going to see more Pixar films, more Disney animated films. Uh, eight live action Disney animated films are scheduled for 2021 and 2022. Uh, six Marvel Studios films. Uh, Lucasfilm is putting Star Wars on hold after The Rise of Skywalker for three years. It's sort of letting that franchise kind of lie fallow as it kind of figures out what the next steps are. Uh, and the real question is, you know, if audiences start kind of getting a little sick of superhero movies, if Pixar makes a couple bad movies, or Lucasfilm can't get Star Wars uh, back into gear the way that it had been, then suddenly Disney is locked into a business model that it's going to be really hard to break out of as uh, studio as audiences start turning away. I actually don't think that's going to be a huge risk for uh, Disney in the short term, but it does sort of it is an open question as to how much how how long Disney can sustain this incredible domination of the Hollywood industry. Yeah, that's like 14 movies that uh, are just going to completely deplete my bank account when I buy all these movie tickets. Disney really has a stuck. Adam, thank you so much for joining me. We'll make sure we tweet out your story. All right, thank you. And don't go away. Up next, Zach and I are responding to your tweets. back y'all and I just over here glowing over that moment with Colin Egglesfield that was incredible it's not I'm not like America I'm not saying like I'm in love with this man but I'm just saying that like he had so much energy for yep. that Cardi B moment like I'm sitting next to him and I felt the shift and I was like oh no here's an actor here it goes. I loved it yeah we were actually applauding over here really? after that moment happened <laughs> it yeah. was so much fun yeah. it was oh, so, much so good so fun. good well we asked what is your favorite gender neutral phrase and John tweeted Jedi and I did not even think about that. Hell yeah, I'm gonna it, use that one from now on. It's so good. And Aunt Dad added, folks and angel. I love that, angel folks baby. Angel. angel is neutral. Yeah. God. So we wanted to know who is an amazing woman you want to highlight in your life. Danielle says, Alex Berg, but seriously, how about the badass women in Gotham of Gotham Girls Roller Derby? I'm crying. I almost said Alex Berg earlier in the show, but I thought You're that was You're very sweet. Uh, oh, I mean, I'll, I'll take it. That was actually <laughs> from like... that was from Spork, who is the president of Gotham uh, of our league and who is also an incredible human being. So Spork there you amazing. have it. I'm going to take your board on that. <gasps> thank you. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you to our guests, Adrian Lawrence, Farhad Manju, Natasha Pitsy, Adam Beveri, and Colin Egglesfield. We will be back here tomorrow at 10 a.m., but have a great rest of your day, Twitter. My angels. Hmm.